Thanks for listening to NapaBroadcasting.com. Thanks for joining us here at Napa Broadcasting. Amidst all the grandiose political talk about the Green New Deal, climate change, and alternative energy, we lose sight of the great work that is happening in communities all across America, including our own. You see it in solar panels on houses and office buildings, in the number of electric cars on our roads, in a general awareness of and opportunities for clean energy and energy conservation. It's becoming clear all the time that in the end, it's not going to be some grandiose piece of legislation in Washington that turns things around. It's going to be the work of companies, communities, and individuals. One of those individuals working right here in our community is my guest today, Gopal Shankar. He's the president of Recolt Energy, and when you see schools and businesses with solar panels around town, a great deal of it is as a result of his work. It is my pleasure to welcome Gopal Shankar here to Napa Broadcasting. Gopal, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Well, it's great to have you here. One of the things I've, I've always wanted to ask you is how you got involved in this business personally, mm-hmm. the personal side of, of really jumping into the clean energy, the alternative energy business. And you've been in it for a while at a time when it wasn't as chic or as popular or as uh, embraced as it is today. Yeah, well, so the story goes back um, to 2002. Um, there were f- few things that happened. I'll, I'll try to keep this as professional as possible unless you tell me that I shouldn't. <laughs> um, but there were a few things that happened that got me going on this track. One was, I mean, mo- most germane to, to this conversation is, you know, we lived on Mount St. Helena in Calistoga and I got a $600 from PG&E and I called them and said, look, even if I want to, I can't spend this kind of money on electricity. Uh, and the person at the other end didn't know it, but we were seeing the—I I was seeing the effect of the 2001 um, energy crisis and 2002 pricing. So that was one thing. The second is, I—you uh, know—I I was working in the wine industry then. I'd worked for a winemaker for six years, uh, and um, I was getting a little dissatisfied with where the wine industry was going. Uh, I read a book called *The Ecology of Commerce* by Paul Hawken. Um, recommended to me by Paul Dolan, who was then the president of Fetzer Winery. And when I read it, I said, wow, I'm going to turn wineries into self-sustaining ecological systems. It sounded really grandiose, and I didn't know where to begin. And then some guys approached me. They said they were a solar energy company, and they wanted access to my wine industry contacts. Well, they weren't a company, but I liked their idea enough that I spent a year and a half trying to get them off the ground. Uh, I didn't know the difference between a kilowatt and a kilowatt hour back then, but I created you know spreadsheet models. I talked to people, um, and all of a sudden I became you know as knowledgeable as anyone else uh, because <laughs> because there wasn't a lot of knowledge back in two thousand and two. Um, anyway, so that what are the advantages mm-hmm. of getting involved in an industry really at a, at an early stage? Is that mm-hmm. nobody knew a whole lot as well? Right, we were all experimenting and. Um, you know, California has been very forward-thinking in many ways, and so coincidentally with my getting into this um, is the the state of California had passed legislation to promote net metering, where you could produce solar electricity. They had subsidies available, um, and and Governor Schwarzenegger had just come in, and he embarked on. I mean, he called it his Million Solar Roofs Initiative. Uh, so the state was heading in a direction that was different from where the feds were. And, you know, I just aligned myself with those goals. 
How did the wine industry embrace the idea initially? When you went out with yeah. this, it was er- as we've established, it was really early on. Yeah. And the wine industry sometimes likes to think of itself as, as a little cutting edge in these areas. Yeah. What was the reaction you got? Uh, well, actually, uh, it you know John Williams had me of uh, Frog's Leap Winery. He had me organize something that he called the Solar Stampede. Uh, this was 2005. And um, it was, even though it was his idea, he very generously invited uh, on behalf of the six entities that had gone, six wineries that had gone solar then. Uh, he had me organize an event so people could understand the economics of solar. So that's all it was. We presented the economics of solar and showed that if you combined the federal tax credits, uh, the accelerated depreciation, um, which again, you had to be, a rich and profitable entity to take advantage of those, a commercial entity. But theoretically, even a Silicon Valley company could take advantage of those kinds of you know, be- tax benefits, but they weren't going solar in a big way. The two other things were, um, is that um, under the best of circumstances back then, because there were no financial vehicles available, uh, your payback was about six years. And uh, again, a Silicon Valley company that's being evaluated on a quarterly basis is going to look at six years and say, we're not interested. But in the wine industry, to succeed, your time horizon needs to be at least 10 years long and six fit right in the middle of that. And lastly, they had money in the bank. You know? So the first solar projects that were, so- that were sold were sold not as being the best for the environment, etc. It was, if you have money in the bank, you can't get a better return on your investment than in solar. So that that's how those got sold. Uh, the, the last bit, which was, again, a huge bonus for the wine industry, is net metering itself. Mm-hmm. You know, wineries have to invest a huge amount of money or capital in equipment that they use for two weeks or two months of the year, and the rest of the time it just is mothballed. Well, the same thing happens with, could have happened or, you know, may eventually happen with electricity, except for net metering. So even though a winery's electricity consumption spikes in two months of the year, September, October, what they were able to do is produce electricity in the summer months when the sun is shining, bank the value, the full retail value of that electricity, and deplete that bank balance at night or in the winter months when the sun doesn't shine as much or during their harvest. And that that was a great benefit. Mm-hmm. You weren't content, though, just to limit it to the wine industry. You decided yeah. that, that there were more <coughs> ambitious goals to be had, even in uh, a county as small as Napa. Yeah, so when in, in, in order to justify you know, my existence in this world, because I felt like a total fraud in 2004 when I was, you know, when I got my first solar project, is I had learned so much in a year and a half and, uh, and to understand why, uh, you know, we had gone to Iraq, uh, you know, for war, what was happening around global warming, what this issue with peak oil was, why, you know, the, the India and China's appetite for energy and so forth. You know, I put all these, I, I drew big circles, Venn diagrams, and I wrote, I named the, the circles and I put my solutions for all of these big problems in the, you know, in those circles. And I real, I had a few epiphanies. One of them uh, was that these are not isolated issues. They were all happening at the same time. So I couldn't come up with a solution for one problem if it caused a problem, a bigger problem, you know, f- somewhere else. Um, the only solution that fit in the intersection of these circles was renewable energy. So 
the next light bulb that went on was, oh, it's an energy transition issue. It's nothing to do with global warming. It's nothing to do with all, you know, peak oil, etc. And one of the things that I realized is that the problems that we focus on as individuals isn't an indication of how big or significant that problem is. It's an indication of who we are. So if I view myself as an environmentalist, as a modern environmentalist, I'm going to see global warming as a compelling issue of our time. If I'm in the oil industry, I see peak oil as a compelling issue of our time, etc. So when I realized this was just an energy transition and that everyone had to participate in the transition, you know, after all, we don't use wheel blubber to light our homes anymore. We don't have kerosene lamps. We've switched to electricity. We've switched to LEDs. This is just an ongoing transition. So because I realized this was for everyone, the challenge I pose for myself, and by the way, my, my business model is to put myself out of business before someone else does, right? Because you, you start something, someone else thinks, well, I'm smarter than this guy. I can do it better and cheaper and faster. And so I decided that I needed to be on the cutting edge of whatever I was trying to do. And so the challenge I pose for myself is, who's the exact opposite of that ideal client, which is uh, the tax-paying commercial winery with a long-term perspective and cash in the bank. I said, well, it's a poor, broke nonprofit struggling to survive. If I can make solar work for them, there's no excuse for anyone between these two extremes. So luckily for me, the Gasa Foundation stepped in and said, um, we meet some of your criteria. We're not broke, <laughs> but... But we are a non-profit, and so I forced the development through an ar a request for proposal for the solar project for them um, that, uh, you know, it was a solar non-profit financing solution that didn't exist before. A guy called Michael Johnson mm -hmm. developed it for, you know, for us. Uh, he's currently on Sustainable Napa County's board. So when he did that, um, that allowed me to go around saying, look, you could be a non-profit, but you can still, this can still work for you. Um, and so schools fall into that category. I was going to say, how yeah. do schools yeah. get involved yeah. next? So schools got, in, and, and with all of the, you know, I don't, I don't talk about saving the environment. <laughs> you can brag about saving the environment after you've gone solar, but in order to go solar, I, want, I need to show you that the numbers work. And for schools, what happens is they have two, two pots of money, right? One which allows them to build, you know, build schools and, do construction-related stuff, and the second is a general fund. They pay utility bills and teachers, school supplies, etc. Well, with with solar, if you could get the state or a bond to pay for that construction, it immediately relieved pressure on the general fund because you were investing in solar through construction. And you're, you didn't have to pay the electric have, bill on precisely, the other hand. Exactly, yeah. So once schools recognized that, um, you know, they went after it in a big way. When you pitched it to the schools, when you started talking to them, would, did they immediately realize the advantage that they had because of, as you describe it, the two pots of money that one could really help the other? I mean, it was a unique kind of situation in that regard. Well, so my, my first school projects were new construction projects. So uh, I did American Canyon High School as part of new construction. Um, and uh, the New Tech High School expansion is part of you know the expansion of those schools. So they had money available for those projects, and then then they found that oh the bills have disappeared or, or have been right. reduced quite substantially. So then the second round was the existing schools, uh, and that's why you have Napa High, Vintage High, 
um, you know, again, paid for with Prop 39 funds, um, partially, and, and then with construction funds. And again, their bills have, you know, either disappeared completely or been reduced quite substantially. So that the third tier are the middle schools. We've done all four now. Uh, and again, the, the economics just continue to work right. in that you know, that way. You mentioned before the cutting edge. <laughs> Talk a little bit about the importance of staying on the cutting edge of this and what it is. How has it changed since you've been doing this? Yeah, so when I, uh, you know, even before I got my first job, um, I, I borrowed money and I put solar in my own house uh, in Calistoga. And I realized I, I still don't understand how electricity works. Um, but I realized that, that a comp- competent electrician could do the work. Why it needed someone like me, an independent consultant, to help manage this process um, is because there's so many things that you have. I mean, I have to understand federal tax laws. Uh, I have to understand utility regulations, local governments, permitting processes, the utilities, uh, uh, interconnection requirements. Uh, their rebate programs, and all of these variables change while you're playing the game, right? The rules of the game are changing while you're playing the game. So someone has to to not just be on top of what's going on, but be able to predict a little bit, this is where I think the world is going. And if you're starting to get satisfied with the direction in which the world is going, you need to get involved in the process to redirect that, <laughs> right? And so that's the kind of thing that I, as I was developing these projects, I realized wow, this is really dumb. Why are, we, why are we doing it this way? And, you know, when I'd call to find out why are we doing it this way, the r- response is, that's how it's been done. <laughs> and, and because it, it may have been fine to continue doing it that way, except that it turned out, turned out to be really expensive for my clients to follow those old, old rules. Yeah, so th- that's when I got involved with getting regulations change and laws change and so forth. And is that the fact that it's so complex? Mm-hmm. Is that the result of of government policy, of public policy decisions along the way? No, I think most of what we're doing. At least, you know, m- m- I should be very clear about this part. I don't know very much of what happens in outside of my world, and my world is is pretty much PG&E's territory, which is Northern California. Um, so PG&E. Uh, is the, you know, you're producing electricity to feed back into the grid. Therefore, they're the ones you have to deal with. And they're operating, you know, with a 100-plus-year-old hundred business model, right? This is the Roosevelt Taft antitrust <laughs> kind of model that we're still, you know, working with. And it, it makes absolutely no sense. But PG&E, for as good as they are, I mean, the people that I work with, uh, as as individuals, very customer focused, etc., their hands are tied, but well, their hands aren't. <laughs> their hands are tied by the people who are running the company, right? They, who want to preserve that that business model, that regulated monopoly model, which doesn't work in a world where people are becoming self generators of electricity, and we have the capacity now to store the excess electricity that we're producing and and storing it. Um, so all, all of that is changing. Technology is changing. Our outlook is changing. You know, uh, our ability as individuals to not just be dumb consumers is uh, is being matched by by technology. So with all of this changing, we can't operate in a world you know based on a business model that's a hundred hundred years old and at least thirty years out of date, if not more. And how is PG and E responding to it today, given all the pressures that exist? 
for renewable energy and for dealing with all of this in a more modern way. Forgetting PG&E's problems for Mm -hmm. the moment, we'll come back to that later, but just in terms of the reality of, of the demands of consumers in the marketplace. Well, not very well because, again, I think there was a New York Times article yesterday which said that PG&E spends more time, you know, if they, not, if they spent less time lobbying for, for rules that favored them and more on delivering service to the folks who are asking for it, they'd be a completely different company today. Um, so, that you know, that, that hasn't been how they have been, been performing. So, the, the wildfires just may be the thing... The, the the final straw that says okay it's it's time that we replace this this model with something else uh, and I think one of the proposals now which you know has been thrown around for quite some time is that PG&E become a poles and wires company only they just maintain you know the, the infrastructure the grid, that's in place the, the, the grid exactly so they they're no longer they no longer are in the supply business. Um, I, I, I'm not sure if they should be in the transmission of electricity business either. It's just, you know, local distribution or something. I mean, the, the, even if they were in transmission and distribution, those two um, segments should be separated. So this is mm-hmm. actually a positive thing that could come out of the whole wildfire issue and all the problems PG is having. Somebody once said, more in a political context, never let a crisis yeah. go to waste. Right, right. This may be an example of that. Yeah, this, this I think, is definitely an example. And different from, you know, uh, um, from 15, 20 years ago, there are many, many voices now. Um, it, it's not just PG&E's. Uh, you know, speaking to the Public Utilities Commission saying this is what we want and then getting it. Now there are people representing the renewable energy sector, you know, solar, fuel cells, the low-income housing folks, the environmental justice people. Uh, There are a whole bunch, you know, many, many voices uh, that are able to counteract some of the things that PG&E has asked for and, you know, and until now they've gotten away with, I mean, not gotten away, they've gotten what they've asked for. Now they'll have a harder time getting it because, you know, there, there are other, other solutions. Talk a little bit about some of the alternatives. I mean, you've talked a bit about people that, that essentially are generating their own electricity, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, schools, individuals like yourself that are putting it on their roof. Mm-hmm. Talk about the way that it's created opportunities for companies to come in and become suppliers of alternative energy. Yeah, so uh, you know, there are – so I, I think the, the the wildfires may be the latest thing that, that spurs – the promote uh, the spurs the installation of what are called microgrids. Um, it's not that microgrids are an entirely new idea. They usually will you know have been getting installed in places where there has been no infra- electrical infrastructure. So you can go to a you know a village in the Philippines or something, and then someone goes and sets up a microgrid grid, and it's entirely self-sufficient, right? You don't need somebody you know bringing in transmission distribution lines from a central generation facility. So with um, with the wildfires here in California, there's an interest uh, in having communities become their own microgrids. Um, at, you know, this is actually under going to be discussed at the uh, city of Calistoga's council uh, on Tuesday the 5th. Um, there's a company called Co- Clean Coalition who's coming in to propose a solution for the city of Calistoga because Calistoga, even though they may not be in a wildfire risk zone themselves, their transmission lines that go through uh, high-risk zones, and if there's a, hi- a high wind event, 
uh, PG&E has uh, said, and they've already done this once, they'll, they'll shut power off. So even though Calistoga is, in, uh, you know, is not under risk directly, they'll have their power shut off and they can't, you know, no one can be in business <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. under those, those circumstances. So, so microgrids are one, one solution that are coming up. Um, solar has been deployed so effectively in California that it's completely sh- uh, changed the shape of what's, you know, our load curve. Um, it turn, it's turned from a, you know, a, a mountain-shaped or a hill-shaped curve, a normal-shaped curve, a bell-shaped curve, into one that's called a duck curve. So it's got a, it's, it, when the sun shines, the duck, the, the, the peak gets flattened. And then once the sun goes down, there's a steep ramp up at the end of the day, which is the neck of the duck. Now, as more and more solar has come on, and I, I think we're at about 13% in California uh, on average. When it comes on, it's so critical that that duck has become a very swayback duck. It's a very, you know, it's a big dip, and then there's a very steep, uh, you know, ramp up at the end of the day. So, with solar being as successful as as it is, n- all new projects that are going to uh, go go in will have will be required to have battery storage because solar has now become. Uh, you know, worthless <laughs> during w- when it, when the sun is shining, so that uh, that energy needs to be stored, uh, and with a combination of rate tariffs being changed to promote the consumption of electricity when the sun is shining, um, that and using electric cars as uh, as mobile batteries, again with with uh, rate tariffs um, or mobile storage, o- all of these these mo- models are are emerging. There are again there are energy storage companies, there are electric car companies. They, I haven't seen any deployments yet, but there's the idea of vehicle to grid. So um, if you have a charge in your battery and the grid needs the needs that electricity at the end of the day, have your vehicle discharge into the grid. O- all of these are. Uh, either already in place or emerging and it'll completely transform how electricity is moved around. How much is all of this dependent on what's happening with battery technology now? Uh, It's hugely dependent on battery technology. So again, I think Tesla, among the guys who've, you know, they've changed changed the game to some extent with their Gigafactory and And I think it's Panasonic that's producing those batteries for them. But there are many, many players. It's not just the lithium-ion. There are other companies, I think, like Avalon, you know, I don't even know what some of these technologies are, but, you know, vanadium flow and, you know, who knows? I, sh- I shouldn't say very much because I don't know enough about these these technologies. Yeah, but, yeah, there are all kinds of other alternatives that are coming into mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about Napa County and the percentage of, of energy that we're now getting, that we're now using from uh, alternative sources. Uh, yeah, so when we switched a few years ago to MCE, um, Marine, R- Marine, Marine, clean, clean Marine Clean Energy, clean energy rebranded as MCE because they're not just serving Marin right. anymore. Um, uh, we are the default is we're at sixty percent. So so any any individual business uh, in Napa has the option of paying a penny per kilowatt hour more uh, and being a hundred you know of their um, of their net load uh, or their net usage and being a hundred percent renewable. They have that option today. Mm-hmm. Um, but for those who have just accepted MCE's default, we're at sixty percent. And talk a little bit about the nexus between companies like MCE mm-hmm. and PG&E and mm-hmm. how that yeah. works. Yeah. So um, th- there are many things that that emerged out of our past crises, right? So we had in nineteen seventy three was the oil embargo, 
And I think it was out of that that we had energy higher energy efficiency standards and net metering that came out. You know, I, I don't have the exact timelines, but roughly mm -hmm. after that. After the 2001 uh, PG&E bankruptcy, um, we were looking for you know d different alternatives, and there was uh, uh, legislation that passed in 2002 called Community Choice Aggregation. Uh, that was AB uh, 117. What this allowed is for local jurisdiction to take over a procurement of electricity or supply of electricity from, from the utility. So if you look at PG&E's historic role, they produced electricity uh, in centralized generation facilities, nuclear, you know, uh, gas turbine cycles, whatever, hydro, etc., and they would transmit that electricity over long distances, go to local you know, communities, neighborhoods, distribute that electricity, and their end customer was uh, who they billed for the electricity consumption was whoever was at the other end of a meter. With CCAs, um, instead of PG&E supplying that or procuring that electricity, it's MCE in this case, in, in our case, and MCE was the first one that emerged in 2010. Um, today, I think there are about 16 of them, either operational or um, in the process of formations, forming statewide. By 2025, the prediction or projection is that 80% of Californians will be with a CCA. Anyway, so they procure the electricity through, you know, issuing requests for proposals, getting. Uh, getting contracts, and I think the number that I just saw today is CCAs in California have procured something like 2,000. I need to I need this check, but I think it's 2,000 megawatts of um, of renewable power. You know, in, in these last few years, uh, with MCE being the major procurer of that electricity. So anyway, so they so they get the electricity. PG&E still transmits it. PG&E still distributes it. PG&E still bills the customer, but Again, anyone in Napa County who is with MCE now will see that their bill will have, if they had just one page, would you know where all these details are broken down, will now have two pages. The first page will say, here's a credit for the generation from PG&E, and the second page will be a bill from PG from MCE for generation, and hopefully the number from MCE is lower than the credit from PG&E, right? That, that was the intention why, why we went ahead with this, yeah. So, so that's what's changed. The, it's just the supply of electricity um, has changed. It's become cleaner much faster. Had we been with PG&E today, we would be at 33% by default, instead of which we had 60%. And talk about the sources of energy for a company like MCE. Yeah. How are they generating their electricity? Yeah, most of it is through, through solar at the moment. Uh, they have, you know, they procure wind. Um, uh, they, I don't think MCE has anything that's coming from the geysers in Calistoga, Middletown. Uh, that's that's going to Sonoma Clean Power. And I think MCE also has a little bit of landfill gas um, that gets converted to electricity. But most of it is procured solar and wind right now. And to what extent is what we've been talking about that's going on here in Napa and, and neighboring communities, to what extent is that reflective of what you're seeing, first of all, in California in general? I, you know, so I'm a very Napa guy, and so uh, all my attention and focus is here. But, you know, I'm, I'm on conference calls regularly with 
other CCA, you know, the Community Power Coalition, right. for instance, and and I hear what's happening in other parts of the state. And so, you know, the amazing things happening in Sonoma. Um, I think recently all of San Diego went with its own CCA. Monterey County has formed its own. I mean, they're the huge, huge swaths of communities are, are, are going after this. And they're emphasizing, depending on the needs of their local communities, they're emphasizing either local job creation or climate protection uh, or, you know, just, just going green as, as quickly as they can. So, so that changes from one community to another. But, but the overall direction is, um, is more carbon-free, renewable electricity faster. Right. As all of this comes online, what happens to the prices and how does it impact the business models that got all these companies started? Uh, which companies you're talking about? Companies the like the CCAs, uh, LIM, MC. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, you know, again, it's a little early to predict what's going to happen with them. But you know, if I look at any industry, it, it always starts. You could have cars, computers, cell phones. It always starts with many, many players, and at some point, they all decide. You know, mergers, <laughs> acquisitions will make us more efficient, and so it may be that these CCAs will eventually, just for administrative efficiency. Uh, and so that the you know even they're regulated, um, so the regulatory process so that's easier. I, I think in in inevitably we're in the very early stages of this, right? We ha- we haven't even formed uh, all the CCAs that are going to form, but you know I th- I think if I'm looking forward twenty or twenty five years, they they will start to have these conversations about mergers and acquisitions if they don't happen sooner. What can PG&E do at this point to make this transition easier? What would you <laughs> like to see them do? Oh, uh, I, th- you know, I really think they need to be separated out. And they, first, they should get out of the the customer data business. You know, I I can't get m- data for my customers easily. The data, you know, missing. They have multiple databases and so forth. So. Again, I think these are all legacy systems that somehow they keep, you know, using chicken chicken wire and chewing gum to keep working, but they don't work. And so there, are, I know there are much better data. Anyway, so so if PG&E is broken up into uh, a distribution-only company and a transmission-only company, or not, if those p- services are provided by different entities, whether they whether it's PGE as the only provider or or one of many competitors, uh, pr- you know, fight you know competing for that service, but that that utility world again, this is just one guy's mm-hmm. you know maybe partially formed opinion. Um, it it should be broken up. Generation is not theirs. Transmission is not just theirs. Distribution is not just theirs. Uh, customer relationship management is not just theirs. What would you like to see Sacramento do? What will changes would you like to see in oh, public yeah. policy that would make your job and the job of, of your colleagues easier? I think th- I think some of the stuff is happening. Just a few days ago, I saw an announcement. Um, uh, you know, and and again, I, I can't keep track of what's happening in Sacramento. There's so many, there's so much legislation proposed. Um, but what I saw just a few days ago was, I think I don't know the number. Maybe it's AB forty. But it's uh, sort of a solar rights act. If you know, I I can guarantee you this. Uh, what's the population of California? Thirty-five million or something. I bet there aren't a hundred people in California who understand their utility bills. 
I mean, I'm, maybe the regular residential bill, you spend some time, you, you'll understand it. But I can give them a bill that belongs to one of my commercial clients. And it's, it's completely incomprehensible. And there's no reason it should be. <laughs> you know, there's, there's no reason for all of this information to, it's like trying to, you know, I don't understand my tax, my tax returns. Right. I try, try as my, <laughs> this, I should be able to understand this stuff, right? But we don't, and so I think the solar rights uh, bill will will make things more comprehensible to customers, and that's where everything to me begins. If a customer understands what's going on, they can take action if they like or don't like what they see. If it's completely incomprehensible, you just sort of give up and you say, forget it, and you go and try to solve some other problem. Um, but that, that that's a big thing. But I think, you know, generally speaking, the state, uh, the state aligns with what we want as communities. Sometimes, not sometimes, quite often the legislation that you intended and what actually gets passed uh, are not the same thing because, again, pg is very good with you know, with their lobbyists and spreading <laughs> misinformation and so forth to, to get what they want. In, you know, I, I've seen this happen. There's, I, I, I know intimately one piece of legislation that I was responsible for and the stuff that was thrown at it to make it, you know, first, first to kill it and then to weaken it. And then even after it got to the Public Utilities Commission to have it, to see if it could be killed over there. Um, I, I've seen this over and over again. And so... What what we are left with today, uh, while it is a workable solution, is n- is still not the best, right? So somehow they need to be pulled out of the lobbying world, and I think all of our lives will get much much better. Talk about your thoughts on what you see happening with the electric car market, yeah. and it seems to have its ups and downs. Generally, it's pegged to the price of gasoline; the price goes up, the the market, and then the whole subsidy issue, which has been very confusing to a lot of people. Yeah, so again, I think electric vehicles uh, um, may be the salvation um, for companies like PG&E also, right? Because PG&E, I'll, you know, uh, w- one of the things that came out, I don't remember, if, um, maybe this still this was as early as uh, an effect of the oil embargo, but th- there's something called decoupling, right? So PG&E today is not uh, compensated based on how many kilowatt hours they sell you, right? It's on how well are they providing you the service, right? So if they invest in infrastructure to deliver that service to you, they get a guaranteed return on that investment. Uh, not because they're selling you X number of kilowatt hours, right? So that's decoupling. So and that that's a good thing if you're trying to promote energy efficiency. But at the end of the day, if they didn't have kilowatt hours to sell, they wouldn't have any revenues coming in, right? I mean, you you still need your customer to take kilowatt hours from you. You can't just be, you know, you you can't just not consume electricity. You need to consume something. So with us getting more and more energy efficient, um, there was some declining in the kilowatt hours that we're consuming. But we have a few things going for us. Now, with electric vehicles, um, it it will eliminate or substantially reduce our gas bills, but it'll cause our electricity usage to go up. And PG&E or the other suppliers of electricity have a great deal of uh, flexibility 
in designing rate structures so that they are incentivizing us to charge when electricity is cheap and discharge into the grid when it's expensive or not charge when it's expensive right. at least now so from just from that electricity generation and usage standpoint again i you know i didn't know this when i started and i shouldn't assume that everyone knows it but when you produce electricity unless you can store it you need to consume it electricity right it 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 doesn't just sit there waiting to be consumed it has to be consumed uh, as it's being produced so um cars provide one solution to that uh, stationary storage which is uh, which is instead of you know batteries that are in cars once a uh, uh, battery serves its purpose in a vehicle it can still be used for some years as stationary storage so that will help uh, you know help uh, flatten that or, or match the supply and demand curves for electricity um so just from the electricity standpoint it's a great idea uh from an emissions reduction standpoint it's a great idea uh especially as the electricity supply gets cleaner to right to charge those batteries uh from an economic standpoint right so i should g- give you the example i last um last august i got a tesla 3 uh and i did the math and i replaced my car with the tesla and i say 50 bucks a month on my um on my car payments and then i got a $7500 tax credit from the feds and a $2500 check from the state and a $500 check from pg&e i get to be on a different rate tariff with pg&e so even though my overall bill will go up because i'm charging at home my cost of electricity goes down um so i'm paying the equivalent of a buck a gallon um and then because i'm self employed i also got a huge you know depreciation right off so so from that standpoint it's been really really good for me and there are many many people who are like me you know middle class tax paying uh who will benefit greatly from these subsidies um it will you know for p- there are many people who who work in napa who don't live here right and so their gas bills must just be horrendous <laughs> if they're commuting into into the city or into st helena wherever every, every day and just having your your fuel bill reduced by 75% or maybe it was just for me maybe it's 50% it's a it's right. a big savings and so the 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 one thing that prevented me from getting a car until recently was that you know I drive I drive ar- around a lot and um I needed a car with an extended mile range that I get 300 miles from 310 miles from the, from this Tesla 3 but most people um I I think the commuters 70% or 80% have a commute that's 30 miles or less. less right. So they can easily if they're home owners they can charge at home, go to work and come back and recharge at home. If they're renters um they should be able to um charge at work and use the workplace charging as their primary, you know, ch- charging what location and that's happening so we're also as part of this you know new initiative that i'm i'm working on i'm trying to get more electric cars you know more infrastructure to charge those cars all all of these things many many things have to happen you know in 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 parallel 
Mm-hmm. What do you think is going to be the next, finally, the next big thing in terms of energy? I mean, as we look at all of this, and as you say, we're in a period of transition, what's the next sort of big thing we should be looking for out there that's really going to change again and really reshape this transition? You know, I, re- I really don't know enough um, about this. I keep reading about you know, I, I've I've read occasional articles about nuclear fusion. <laughs> I've <laughs> read occasional articles, I think, uh, about uh, you know nuclear, which is which is intended. I mean, the 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 a nice model would be to have uh, very small nuclear modular units that could be you know installed a hundred feet underground, um, and that power a local community or local city. Rather than you know, at some point, solar solar is the the good guy today. But if we keep letting them proliferate, they'll be the bad guys tomorrow. Right. Just like cars were introduced as a clean alternative to horses crapping all over the place, right? And today, cars are killing us. And so, if we if we just let solar grow, I mean, there, there's lots of room to grow still. But if we let it just grow completely unconstrained and we don't look at alternatives continuously. Yeah, it'll it'll turn out to be a nightmare in you know <laughs> fifty years from now or something. Um, but yeah, there are all these these other things that are being looked at. So um, so different synthetic fuels. Um, I I'm hoping to bring some hydrogen in, into Napa. So the electricity that we generate from let's say floating solar is used to create hydrogen rather than electricity, uh, so that we have something that works at night too and works better as a transportation fuel possibly. Uh, yeah, so there are all kinds of exciting things going on. It's an <laughs> exciting business. It is. It's 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 great. Yeah, it's a great business. Gopal Shankar, I thank you so much for coming in and spending time with us. You're welcome. Thank you. Local voices, local conversations. Napa